Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning as we begin uh, our series in the book of Ruth. And many of you may be thinking, why would we go to Ruth for Advent? Well, this is part and parcel of us recognizing that uh, all the Old Testament points forward to Christ who came and is coming again, right? And so we want to be able to see the various ways in which the glory of the gospel, the, the beauty of God's love for us has been from since eternity past, as Ephesians 1 would tell us. And so it shows up in all kinds of places, and the book of Ruth is one of those places that we hope we have a deeper and richer understanding of God's love for us in sending Christ the first time and in the, the hope of his return. And so uh, if you would be turning in your Bibles, we're in Ruth chapter 1. It is between Judges and 1 Samuel, uh, and uh, we'll be in the first five verses. And as you're turning there, let me give the key truth that I would love for us to walk away with this morning. It's this. God doesn't allow our fear-based decisions to keep his redemptive promises from coming true. Let me say that again. God doesn't allow our fear-based decisions to keep his redemptive promises from coming true. If you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word. This is Ruth 1, 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahalan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahalan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, what's interesting about the book of Ruth, and many commentators have made this notation, is it really is a very well-written short story. That does not mean that it's not true or that it's mythical. Understand that in God's designing of things, you could see this all throughout creation. Think of the, the, the intricacy and the complexity that God has in any riven thing that he's created. So it is true of his word. He's able to bring things together in his sovereignty and in his providence that help enrich the story, that help draw us further up and further in. And Ruth is one of those books where we want to take our time to pay attention to the many ways. We, we won't exhaust them, but the many ways in which God is a, 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 an incredibly gifted storyteller. And the ways in which he works in all of the ordinary things that he chooses to work through. And so, as we step into the book of Ruth, let me ask you uh, straight away, how has fear affected your decision-making at various points in your life? How has either fear of, of loss of income, fear of uh, how it will impact your family, fear of how it will impact the opportunities that you have, just good old-fashioned everyday fear. How has that, over the whole of your life, affected or driven how you make decisions? Now, here's how you know, right? Because let's be honest, I think all of us in wisdom, when it comes to things we don't know, corners we can't see around, there ought to be a little bit of trepidation, right? Like picking your family up and moving them uh, north of Atlanta and taking about a $40,000, $50,000 pay cut ought to cause a little bit of trepidation in a man and a, a woman and everybody else involved, right? Right? 
However, the, the issue is what drives the decision. And where do we turn when it occurs? I think too many of us, and I want to be very clear here, too many of us beat ourselves up when we experience fear or anxiety. Please don't do that. You're human. And this is a fallen world, and there's a lot of strange things going on. There's a lot of stuff we can't see. I would rather us recognize that that's just part of the limitations of our humanity, right? We who don't know everything, we're going to have a little fear and anxiety every now and again, if not a lot. But what I want to encourage you in is what you then do with that emotion, that feeling, that circumstance when it comes upon you. We ought to be people who turn to the Lord, who come boldly before his throne, because that's exactly the reason that Christ, part of the reason Christ died is so that we can come and receive what we need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace, right? So if you need mercy and grace, that means you're not coming perfect. You're not coming with everything already packaged, well understood, and well put together. We always come before the throne messy, do we not? He's holy. We are not yet fully holy uh, in, in the transformation of us toward glorification. And so I want us to be disabused dis of the notion that fear and anxiety, because we can misquote that verse, God's not a God of fear. No, God's not, but we are oftentimes, are we not? Which is why we need a God who's not a God of fear. And granted, he tells us we ought to be comforted in him, and that is, why would we need to hear that word? that we need to be comforted by him in our fear and our anxiety because we're going to have it. So what you do with it is what's important. Which way you run, just like when we sin, fear and anxiety, I'm not saying that, that that's sin, but which way you run in your hour, in your moment of need is critical. What we're going to see here is that a family hit by famine ran the wrong way. They let their fear ultimately dictate what they believe to be true about God and his promises. We can do that sometimes as well, can we not? Now here's the good news. God doesn't allow our fear-based decisions to ultimately decide his redemptive promises. However, I want to give a caveat. There can be consequences, and we're going to see those consequences. There can be some, some disciplining. There can be some difficulty. So uh, we would rather be a people who turn quickly with our fears and our anxieties to the throne of God not embarrassed, not ashamed by the fact that we were afraid or we were anxious, but recognizing there is one who seeks to, to still those waters in our souls. Uh, and then if you think about the times where fear has driven you, it's good to think about what it costs you. Either in terms of opportunities missed or more importantly, and I think we don't think about this one all the time, I'm guilty, uh, we don't think about how it affects an opportunity missed to grow in our seeing how much God loves us, right? The, the opportunity to see just how deeply he cares for us. I, I think, and I'm sometimes haunted by this idea, and maybe some of you are as well, that sometimes I just feel like maybe God's just setting me up so hard would be the fall. That's a cruel view of God if you think about it, but I can't help it sometimes. It's hard for me to get excited about stuff because I've been through some things. I've had my hopes dashed very early in life. And then I've had hopes met beyond my wildest expectations as well, right? So which one of those ought to dictate? Well, the ones where God has been good to me. I, I have a good father who loves me. It's okay for me to hope. It's also okay for me to be disappointed and confused at times, by the way. I am human after all, and so are you. 
And so I hope that that's what we see here is that the book of Ruth is one of the most beautiful stories of God's pervasive love. The, the promise of redemption that cannot be taken away and, and the bad decisions of a handful of people. Uh, and so that's good news to us. So as you turn back to the text, I want to walk through different portions slowly to make some observations so that you can see uh, the story come alive a bit more. So notice the location of the story. It's in the days when the judges ruled. Now, this should immediately call to mind the ringing bell from the book of Judges, which is everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes. Now, how does that play out societally? What if our worship service, we were like, all right, whatever anybody wants to do, uh, we're going to hand out some megaphones, we're going to hand out some, some air horns, we're going to hand out, we're going to have a popcorn machine, we're going to turn the kids loose with broken glass, and no, I'm sorry, we shouldn't do that, right? It would be chaos. There's, there's, there is something good about order, right, that is, it's a blessing to us, it allows us to know what to expect and to prepare for. And so for everyone to do what was right in their own eyes, if you've read the book of Judges, how did that go? It was chaos. Politically, sociopolitically, uh, spiritually, it was chaos. Well, here's what's beautiful about God. Now, that's a big deal to him, right? What, for us, what's going on in the White House, what's going on in Israel, in the Middle East, those are very important to the Lord our God. Don't get me wrong. But also very important to the Lord our God is a little family from Bethlehem and a Moabite. And that's going to become very important to this story and ultimately to us understanding the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in Christ. And so this story, in the, in the midst of all that chaos, all, that all those interesting stories that you have from the book of Judges, it takes a break from all that and says, let's, let's follow one little family from Bethlehem. It goes on to say, there was a famine in the land. Now, here's what we know. This famine was localized because... Uh, Moab is only about 50 miles southeast of Bethlehem. So it wasn't like some of the major famines all throughout the area. That's an important data point to us because more than likely that this famine may have been the result of some of the wars that were going on in the book of Judges. Now, this is important. What does that tell you just as you think about it, how long this famine would probably last? Well, not as long as uh, what we would call an ecological event that you have no control over. Right? And clearly, people stayed in Bethlehem and didn't starve to death. Right? We're going to find out later in the story. There's a guy named Boaz and a whole bunch of people who stuck around, trusted the Lord and his promises, and chose not to go. Now, what's interesting about this story is that we're going to see here in just a moment that the family, when they left Bethlehem, may not have originally intended to stay in Moab. But it's what they end up doing. And so... Uh, as it goes on, it says, uh, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to, and this is key, sojourn in the land, uh, in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So he takes his family and he's checking things out in Moab because he's concerned, he's fearful, uh, as best we can tell. And, and we're going to see the consequences of that that indicate that he was, he was fearful. And notice what it doesn't say he did. He didn't turn to the Lord God and say, Lord, what would you have me do? Notice, unlike our assurance of pardon uh, that said that, that uh, um, 
that little family from Bethlehem was called into Egypt to protect them from the horror that was coming upon the children of Bethlehem. Uh, unlike them, these folks were not called to Moab. And they, in their fear, didn't run to the throne of grace. Instead, they ran to the land of compromise. That's not my word. That's many commentators talk about how they run to the land of compromise out of the land of promise. Now, what's difficult about this is in order for Elimelech to do what he's doing, he would have had to have sold his land. But he was counting on coming back. And because he had two sons, he was anticipating that one way or the other, the land would be restored to the family, given all the Levitical laws surrounding land and family and all these things. Now, I want to pause here because there's something that we need to see about ourselves. How many times do we make decisions that have some fear in them, we really didn't check with the Lord, or we make the decisions in arrogance because we anticipate, hey, I think I've got a backup plan built in. I've got a backup plan. This, this, and many times we, we hear this as we seek to counsel you uh, when you come into our office and you have a, a grand plan with what you're going to do and you have all these provisios, these backups, and we're going, do you, do you want to tell them or do you want to tell them that it's not going to work out? The backup plan is not what they think it is. And why are backup plans in our own power not the best idea we've had? Because we don't have the power to bring them to pass. And we don't know how to uh, deal with, as this family is going to endure, when tragedy strikes. Do you think they went to Moab uh, expecting Elimelech, uh, Mahalon, and Chilion to die? Because that changes the game radically for Naomi. In fact, it, it, it impoverishes her beyond her wildest dreams. Which is why, and you'll hear this next week, she goes against what her name means, delightful, and becomes deeply, deeply bitter and angry with God. So we need to be careful of the things that we put stock in that we have no control over ultimately, right? What you do have some measure of control over is whether or not you're going to be obedient to the Lord. After that, everything else is primarily up for grabs in some form or fashion. So... He's sojourning, he's kicking the tires, he's seeing what's going on, and then it starts to reveal. Notice how the story hasn't even told us their names yet. They're just slowly kind of giving a detail, then another detail, and building the story as it goes. Now we get his name. Now for those of us who don't speak this language, it would be hard for us to appreciate how important the names are in the book of Ruth, so it's worthy of us uh, stepping into it a little bit further. But his name means, my God is king is his decision-making reflective of his name. Now, you may say, if you're a little wicked like me, well, is God not king over Moab? Well, there's some things you need to know about Moab. So let's back up for just a second. So Moab is born of a circumstance in Genesis 19 between Lot and his daughters. His daughters, scared to death that there were no more men left on the planet. Now, let's be fair to them. They were living in a cave, and there was one other dude. Happened to be their dad. So you can kind of understand their fear-based thing, especially if you ever saw that movie, The Village. It's kind of like that, but smaller scale. And so here they are thinking there's no other men in the world and that they have a responsibility to help God out with, with his project to fill the earth with his glory. They don't check with God about this plan. They choose instead between the two of them, let's get daddy drunk. This is like some sort of lower Alabama type story. Let's get daddy drunk and have some kids, right? 
And so it gets weird after that because the, the product of those children, it shows God's displeasure. The product is a people called the Ammonites and a people called the Moabites, neither of which are welcome in God's uh, temple for 10 generations. Those people also end up worshiping a God called Molech, where they sacrifice living children to try to keep Molech pleased, something God never calls for us to do. They also, anytime Israel needed help from them, this shows up in the book of Numbers and some other places, they opposed them at every turn. So there is nothing but hostility between these two groups of people with the Moabites and the Ammonites being pagans. So to go to Moab looking for help as an Israelite is foolish. It would be akin to some of the things that you're currently witnessing in the news. And so it's very important that we recognize how deeply foolish or how driven by fear Elimelech was. Now, there's also another indicator by the names of his two boys that something's probably not quite right in his uh, practice of uh, uh, Israelite religion. So his two boys have Canaanite names. Why would you, if you're an Israelite, why in the world would you name your children after an accursed people? Well, even more interesting than that, in my opinion, is what those names mean, right? So Mahalan means sick and dying. <laughs> what if you were like, hey, I, just, I was looking at you when you were born, I thought, man, sick and dying really fits this one, right? That's crazy. Who names their kid that? The other name actually means pining or longing, but not in a good way, or losing. So it's, it's, it's really like... Uh, this nothing's ever going to come. Right? Like it's kind of a, almost like a waiting for Godot type name. He ain't coming. And so these names of their children are indicators that they probably in their practice of religion were what we call syncretistic. So syncretism means that you, you not just practice Israelite religion as it is declared, but you bring in other ancient Near Eastern religions just so you maybe keep all the gods happy just in case they all exist. And so already we see the indicators that Elimelech was not leading his family well. And it is clear that it is God's displeasure. And so who does God put in the dock first? Elimelech. We don't know how long they were in Moab, but probably not very long, and Elimelech dies, which would have been a, very, a shocking blow. But Naomi would have said, all right, that's not good. I still got my two boys Sick and dying, and pining no one's coming. <laughs> well, they, they say, let's help mom out. Now, fortunately for mom, they didn't go with the Lot's daughter's plan. They chose instead to marry some Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah's name, we don't exactly know what these names mean, but Orpah could mean back of the neck or nape of the neck, which is going to show up later in the story. And then Ruth, uh, her name either means friendship or something within kind of a covenant realm. And so, so all right, they're not, their situation's not totally out of the woods yet. They've married. If they have any sons, then there's further guarantee that the land's taken care of. So this plan is looking, it's getting better by the moment, even though we've lost Elimelech. Well, but something else happens. So as they choose to now no longer sojourn in the land, they dwell there. They live there. Ten years. How many grandchildren does she have after ten years? 
Not one. And these boys end up living up to their names. They die. And so now you have Naomi, who is thinking she's going to let Orpah and Ruth go. We'll see that a little bit later, that they have no business coming back to, to Israel. Because again, how do you think Israelites would treat Moabites coming into their spheres? Well, again, if you're paying attention to the news, probably not very well. And this has been going on for a long, long time. And Naomi, as a widow, an Israelite widow, what are her prospects in Moab? Well, if you know anything about the ancient Near East, it, it would be worse and getting worse and horrible. Uh, women were not treated well then, especially if they were poor. Uh, and so she would have been abused and misused, and her life would have been hell. So here she is after these fear-based decisions and the, the, the counting on things that they could not control left with essentially nothing. And so here she is with everything gone, and she has to decide which way will I run now? To whom shall I run? Now, I don't want to steal Robbie's thunder for the sermon next week, so I'll leave it hanging there, uh, as, as, as it were. But it's important for us to recognize that the story doesn't end there. And notice that, that God's judgment, which I believe did fall on Elimelech and Mahalan and Chilion, has not fallen on Naomi as of yet. The story goes on. Uh, and, and so we recognize that these folks have made some terrible fear-based decisions. And maybe, maybe so have some of you. Maybe so have some of you felt like you, you've made some bad decisions either in terms of uh, the job that you've taken. Or, or the, the neighborhood that you've moved into. Or, God forbid, the person you have married. Or the number of kids that you have had or haven't had. And maybe, maybe you, you feel like you've ruined everything and that you're just waiting for God to judge you. Well, I have good news for you. Because Christ has come, because God loves you, because God is sovereign and good and all-powerful, this is not the end of the story for you. In fact, you don't need to make more anxious, uh, uh, thoughtless, uh, uh, instead of going before the throne-based decisions. No, I would encourage you, based on what you see, even here in this little portion of the book of Ruth, and many of you know how the story ends because Christ comes, and there's some names that are going to show up from this book in his lineage, which indicate to us, wow, God really is good and sweet to his people, and he's even good to a Moabitess who was not supposed to have any say at all in anything in reference to the kingdom by our lights, not by God's lights. And so this is very important for you to recognize that regardless of what you have done and regardless of how you feel about what you've done and how you feel about where you currently are, you are served by and loved by a God who can radically transform those circumstances according to his righteousness and holiness not according to your wants, needs, and happiness. Do you understand the difference? Too often I think that we, we feel like if I could just get out of the situation that I've gotten myself into, 
uh, and I've got all these other kind of contingencies that I'm counting on instead of counting on the Lord. The Lord may work through those contingencies. The Lord may work through your current circumstance. The Lord may redeem in ways that would absolutely blow your mind and cause you to give praise to him and testify of his goodness to everybody in your spheres of influence. Is that possible? We better hope so. We better hope so. And I more than hope so. I know it to be true because of my own circumstance. The many times I thought I have made a terrible decision. And can I be honest with you for a second and not freak you out? Well, we're this far in, so I guess we're, we're going. There have been times where I, even as a Christian, have thought that suicide might be the better way. It would deliver the whole thing. It might be better for those around me to not have to carry my darkness anymore. And that ain't a young man's thing that, that happened. There, there are times where I've thought, Lord, I'm going to do something so terrible to, to, to make you let me go. So I can be free of X, Y, or Z. I've had those thoughts. Not casual, not just fleeting. And I know that may shock some of you and you may think, man, we need a, we need a, 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 a more holy pastor. I've got good news for you. Zach Carden's going to be at uh, Marietta Community Church. You got options. But as for me, this is me. Right? No knock on Zach. I'm, he's a sinner too, by the way, and he would tell you. Uh, and so it, it's very important that we, we recognize that these dark thoughts, which way you run with them are very important. I, I'm, I'm ashamed that I had them, don't get me wrong, but I am not ashamed of which way I ran. I am not ashamed of how God has worked it out. I am not ashamed of how it has grown me in my understanding of God's love for me because of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit, because of you, because of Susan, because of all that represents him and his means of grace. I am thankful that the Lord cares about ordinary things. Oftentimes, my mind was driven to those places because I really thought God was more concerned about everything everywhere else except me. He is concerned for us. He's concerned about everything everywhere else, by the way. He's big enough to do that. But he's also concerned, very concerned for each of us individually. Do you know that he knows every hair on your head that's follicles for me now, but you, maybe more, right? He knows you intimately. Don't be a, a stoic. Be someone who is beloved of God. Be someone who has access to all the heavenly means of grace. Be not ashamed of your humanity, your frailty, your limitations. Because the Lord our God is a God of hope and a God of sovereignty, and his promises will hold true in the dark of any and every night and in any given moment that we just can't see the way through. So, listen to what David J. Atkinson has to say about this particular portion. He says, the story is set in the days when the judges ruled, days when, as we shall see, faith in God was threatened by much that was dark and fear-making. But... Even in a context in which faith was challenged, our author urges upon his readers, upon us, a certainty and delight. Did you hear that? I don't want you to just believe that it is true. I want you to be glad that it's true. I don't want you to cling only. I want you to taste and see his goodness. 
that we would have a certainty and a delight in the security of God's providence. So here's the question that I have for us before we come to the table. How should you first respond to significant challenges that come into your life? Like this is something, you, you won't do this naturally. This is something you must cultivate and train up in yourself, right? Is which way you're going to run. When you get hit with a challenge, which way are you going to run? How are you going to do it? You need to cultivate not just your, your prayer life, right? And, and again, I want to give you some, some great news. Even when you think you don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit's groaning on your behalf. There is Christ interceding for you and me personally, constantly. There are angels who have been tasked with helping us out. So we don't have to get all of that right. It's just where we go. I would also encourage you, don't just cultivate the prayer side of it. That is good. But cultivate the community side of it. You need people that you can turn to who will point you to Jesus. That that when you share what you share, you will not be judged for being human. You will not be judged for a frailty that is inescapable except the resurrection. Uh, In our time of prayer this morning, someone was sharing a prayer request and how important it was that that, uh, for the, the person they were praying for that when they had revealed their doubts, the people they revealed them to didn't immediately rush to judgment. They rushed to Jesus. As we say around here, doubt's not the problem. It's arrogance. And it is, hear me, hear me rightly, it is an arrogant thing to think that our plans will go exactly as we have planned them. It is insanely arrogant for us to think that the contingencies that we've come up with will hold uh, at each level. It is insanely arrogant to think that we don't need in an ongoing way to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive what we need in a time of trouble, is it not? It's arrogant to think that I am more than human. You are more than human. Stuff wears out, and, 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 and we, we can't hold it all. So praise be to God that we have someone and some, somewhere to turn. And granted, he takes his time. And he gets it right because it's in the fullness of his time according to his understanding. But may we grow in being able to see all the places where he has done this, including the book of Ruth. Ruth is our story too. This is very important. This is a story that has a deep, deep impact on us too. And so next question would be, what should serve as a foundation for your decision-making in response? Well, it ought to be, Lord, which way would you have me turn? That you would seek wise counsel. It's always telling to me when, when people come with a finished decision. When, when, when folks make, make decisions w- without seeking any wise counsel uh, of, of hardly any kind, when, when you won't put it to the test, and I'll, listen, if you think you struggle with it, <laughs> I am arrogant in thinking. I know some things, and rarely have I been good at because the way I grew up, I didn't have anybody to turn to. So it's how I learned to operate. So it's been a challenge to me to make sure that I'm putting stuff before, and thank God I have the, the staff and the session, and I've got friends, my, my, my wife. I can, I can turn and open up the box and let them see the dark stuff and let them, let them hear kind of how I'm processing stuff, and they're able to point me to Jesus every time. We need that too. Now, you may say, I don't have it. Okay, let's figure it out. 
Let's pray for it. Let's get connected. Let's, let, you're going you're gonna to have some, some hits and misses on that part, on the community part, but you'll have no hits and misses when it comes to the throne of grace. So what a gift that as we begin this journey through the book of Ruth, that we would be reminded of where this story is going and, and where our story has gone and is going, right? That we would be, as Advent begins, this time of longing and waiting, a time that can be very difficult for many of us in terms of family dynamics, in terms of those we have lost, in terms of decisions that we have made. This can be a very, very tough time of year. And so what a gift it is that we would be nourished in our faith as that season begins, that we would be granted the, 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 the strength and remembrance of Christ himself who came and died for us. Don't forget John 17. He didn't just pray for the disciples. He was praying for us too, if you remember. And this table helps us to remember what it is that he did for us, how deeply it is that God loved us, that he gave his only begotten son, that he would give up what was the most valuable thing in all of heaven. And you may say, yeah, but he was God. He's not a machine. He's a father. We have no idea. We, we don't know what it's like to hurt holy. We only know how to hurt as, as fallen, broken, but redeemed folks who see through a glass darkly. Do you have any idea what holy hurt would look like? Far purer and stronger than what we experience. So the Lord, in his great goodness, absorbed that in his holiness so that we would be restored to him. And what a gift that it's just an ordinary table. You may say, I don't see much going on up there. Exactly. That's how God works through ordinary things. Yes, the geopolitical matters to him, but he likes to work like leaven and fill up the whole bread with his goodness. And so if the elders would go ahead and come forward, I want to remind us of what it was that was said to his friends who he so deeply loved on the night that he was going to be leaving them to be crucified brutally. Uh, he knew he was going to rise again, which is why he could set aside the, the, the cup once he had drank from it. But he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. And that giving was so that we would no longer endure shame and guilt for our sins, our fears, our anxieties, that we would be able to be honest about those things in a way that we were never before. And then he took the cup as the meal went on and he raised it and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. That meant their hearts were going to be transformed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh where the law would no longer be this tutor to their immaturity but would become their very lifeblood because of the resurrection power that was gonna course through them because of God's love. That it would become the means by which they could love God and love their neighbors who frequently cause us to fear and have anxiety. And so, as you receive the elements, I want to encourage you to meditate just on the goodness of God and what this season represents, how the coming of Christ is still such a great gift to us, greater than anything you will receive this holiday season, greater than anything you will suffer this holiday season. And then we'll take together as family. Now, the, the only folks who should let this meal pass them by are those who don't believe in Jesus. It's not enough sustenance to make lunch for you. And then it's also, for those of you who are unforgiving, you harbor a deep and profound hatred towards someone else that you think they are unworthy of the forgiveness of God should they repent. 
I'm not saying you're not struggling with maybe a relationship somewhere, but this is the means by which you continue to struggle well and toward. But if you have given up and have, have castigated or since, since thought they deserve to go to hell, well, you don't get to make that decision. So this table should pass you by as well. But for everybody else, doubting, fearful, pensive, anxious, angry, you need this table. Confess that and receive the goodness of Christ to help soften those things. Learn to run to the throne of grace, not away from it. Let me pray for us, and then we'll distribute the elements uh, and take together as family. Father, thank you that this ordinary table reminds us of such extraordinary things, the extraordinariness of your love for us that shows up in so many ordinary ways, the extraordinariness of Christ dying for us which plays itself out in so many ordinary ways day in and day out. The extraordinariness of the resurrection of Christ, which we struggle to see sometimes because it is just so ordinary at times. And we thank you for the extraordinariness of the promise of the return that helps us to hope when all things will be made new, but not just hope in a way that is pining like the name of one of Elimelech's children, but we are those who hope and are able to grieve with hope and through hope because it is tangible. The incarnation has been tangible. The transformation of our lives has been tangible. The beauty of the church is tangible. Thank you, Lord, that we get to dine on these things. Help us to be nourished in and through them. In Christ's name, amen.